Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. We're glad you're joining us today. It is November in Canada. And if you don't live here, November in Canada is giving us a sneak peek of what winter is going to be. The days are getting shorter and winter is on its way. It is. One of my favorite things about summer is where we live. Sometimes it stays light out till like 11 o'clock at night and I love it. But in the wintertime, we're getting dark at o'clock or earlier sometimes. Well, and sometimes the sun doesn't rise until like eight or nine. Yeah. So a lot of people go to work in the dark and they come home in the dark. We've even actually had some snow already. And so you have to start the car ahead of time before you go to work and scrape everything off. And mm-hmm. Or you can drive down the road like the crazy person that uses their <laughs> windshield washer fluid. <laughs> I have learned you can only do that with a very light frost. <laughs> But there's sometimes the frost is so thick, it's hard to even scrape off. So you really do have to let your car warm up properly. (laughs) Or have you ever been driving when the frost comes in the car? Yes. (laughs) We live in a crazy climate. We do. I always ask myself, why do we live here? And then I see pictures of like giant spiders in Australia or things like that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I live here. There are some benefits. Yeah, that's why I choose to live where the air hurts my face, quite literally. (laughs) There are things that I like about the winter. Like I love when you're driving and the sun is glistening off the snow or the hoarfrost that collects on the trees and just makes everything look so pretty. Those are beautiful from the safety of inside my house or my car where it's already warm. (laughs) Honestly, I could do without. If I could have a whole nother season of just a beautiful fall... That would be ideal for me, where you can still have a little bit of sweater weather, but on the nice days, still wear your flip-flops. That's perfect for me. Fall is my favorite season. Mm -hmm. But then I wouldn't get hockey season. Winter to me means hockey season, and I love hockey. So, Oh, well, I can do without that too. (laughs) So today is Remembrance Day. Yeah. So happy Remembrance Day, all of our listeners, or Veterans Day, depending on where you live. But it is a really good holiday for us to think about our veterans that have served and sacrificed and lost their lives and their families as well. The sacrifices that they have made so that we can continue to live in a free country. Absolutely. And there's still those that are serving today. Mm -hmm. So it's ongoing. So thank you to all those that have served or are continuing to serve. Yeah. And in honor of that, Melissa has a crazy tale that involves veterans, believe it or not. I do. And so let's get into today's case. I was drawn to it for two reasons. First, it seemed fitting that it was about veterans, this being Remembrance Day and all. And second, it's about a nurse that kills. (gasps) Being a registered nurse here in Canada, I can't fathom how a nurse could maliciously do the things that this nurse does. It's unnerving to think that she was in a position to help and she just callously disposed of her vulnerable victims. That is terrifying because when we come to a hospital or we come to a doctor or a nurse for help, we have that level of trust automatically that they're there to help us. They've taken that oath to help us. And she totally betrays this trust. In one of the statements during her court case, they call her the monster who no one sees coming because you don't expect it from somebody that's in that position of trust. So true. So this is a classic wolf in sheep's clothing. Absolutely. Have you ever had a nagging suspicion that something wasn't quite right about something? All the time. But I don't know if sometimes that's because something isn't or that's just my anxiety being my friendly friend. (laughs) (laughs) It's keeping you safe. (laughs) So I'm guessing then that you probably don't do anything about it most of the time. Sometimes, depending on how much that feeling reoccurs and what the situation is behind it. I feel like you always need to trust your gut. That would have been good advice in this case. Between 2017 and 2018, up to 20 vets died under suspicious circumstances at the VA hospital in West Virginia. Many of the staff at the time had noticed some really unusual things happening during the night shifts at the hospital and had uncomfortably joked amongst themselves and even on Facebook about an angel of death amongst them. (gasps) Oh, no. So kind of like that cat. (laughs) Oh, do you mean Oscar? Yes. Oh, I love Oscar. 
For those of you who don't know, Oscar is actually a therapy cat that lives in a nursing and rehabilitation center in Providence, Rhode Island. He is so awesome. Although I don't think I'd want him by my bedside. <laughs> so Oscar appears to be able to predict the impending death of terminally ill patients right before they die. He'll actually go up to those patients and he'll lay down with them and sleep or nap near them for a couple of hours right before they actually do die. And one of the things that I find the creepiest about Oscar's happenings is that he doesn't usually sleep with patients. He's usually hiding in the supply cupboards or like somewhere else. He's not a people cat. Yeah. So he's just when it's your time to go. Isn't that crazy? That is so crazy. Oh, creepy. <laughs> but really neat. And how sweet that he goes to basically nap with them and maybe try to give them some comfort. Yeah. So nice. So his act of being an angel of death, completely different than Retta Mays. It wouldn't be until June 2018 that somebody couldn't keep quiet about their nagging gut feeling and... It didn't take long to identify that those staff members' intuition proved right, and Retta Mays was identified as a person of interest. And I can see how it would take so long, because you would think of it as a joke. You wouldn't actually think that one of your coworkers was capable of doing something like this. No, so it would be a joke. Like, at first, you'd be like, well, like, what a coincidence. And it's just like yeah. what was happening with the cat, right? But right. there's always usually a scientific reason for why things are happening. And so with the cat, they think it's because he was smelling these pheromones and predict the death was about to occur and with Retta Mays there's a reason too that people were dying around her oh no <laughs> I haven't heard anything about this story at all so I'm so excited to hear it today it's a good one so we often think about serial killings being brutal events but that's not always the case not all serial killers leave their victims bloody and mangled but just because she didn't leave mutilated bodies behind her doesn't mean she wasn't just as terrifying or that her victims didn't suffer she would creep into hospital rooms at night under the guise of some one that was caring and going to be a companion and watch over them and she would pass her own judgment on their frailty and their right to live so she was basically like playing god yeah oh that's terrifying it is so i'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and the thoughts of our listeners about whether retta was solely responsible for the deaths of these vets or are others to blame as well can someone actually be responsible for a serial killer's actions good question we talk about that a lot actually on buried motives like if we look at way back to our mary bell case could her parents and the upbringing that she had have some responsibility absolutely right i want you to keep that in mind as we go through today's case because there's a lot that comes out after her trial where blame is placed other places even though she's the serial killer that seems like a stretch for this case just wait well you're gonna get into it she was born on june 16th 1975 she attended school in maryland and delaware as a child and she attended glenville state college in west virginia from the fall of 1993 to the spring of 1994 in an accounting program but unfortunately she didn't graduate instead she married gordon e mays a custodian, and had two sons with him. Oh. Retta was a longtime member of the Monroe Methodist Church, 20 minutes outside of Clarksburg in West Virginia. Her pastor said that although her attendance was irregular and she attended alone, that Retta was friendly and seemed devoted to her family. Many of Retta's relatives and the relatives of her victims attended this same church. Oh. I thought that would have been so hard afterwards. Yeah, that's like double trust broken then. Mm -hmm. She was actually an active member in their community. Yikes. Retta's neighbor during the time that she worked at the mm -hmm. Veterans Affairs Hospital, Tina Hickman, described her as a friendly neighbor that allowed her to walk her dog on her property and would chit-chat in the morning with her. Tina's opinion of her neighbor remained unchanged when the rumors began to creep in that Retta might be connected to these deaths that were happening in their hometown hospital. And she didn't want to believe it. She didn't want to believe it. No, well, she couldn't because her neighbor was such a nice person. When her own grandfather's name was listed as one of the potential victims, she still had trouble seeing how her friendly neighbor could be responsible for such an awful crime. Wow. So these people that Retta goes on to kill are not complete strangers. They're not people that she didn't already have a connection with in the community. Wow. She was caring for her neighbors and her friends' family members. Well, and if Retta really believes that she's the angel of mercy, then she's not coming across as this malicious or evil person, right? If in her mind, she's thinking that this is from a place of caring. Yeah. I'm not totally convinced that she didn't throw out that after the fact. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Retta joined the West Virginia National Guard about six months after 9-11. So she was actually a veteran herself. What? She, yeah. She oh, was a little double crosser. <laughs> I think that just makes it 10 times worse. It does. Yeah. So there's no sense of loyalty with her at all. No, none. 
crazy. Retta was deployed with the 1092nd Engineer Battalion to Iraq in 2003, where she was a chemical equipment engineer in a non-combatant position. Okay. So she still served. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's an, impo- an important job. Yeah. And just because it's not a combatant position doesn't mean that it wasn't important or that it still wasn't stressful or dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah. We're grateful for those who serve in any capacity. Absolutely. A person that served with her at the time was interviewed after the murders were made public and he said that he had spent brief times with Retta in Iraq and that she was a good all-around person. She didn't skip drills and she seemed to thrive in a combat unit of mostly men despite it being a difficult environment. So she was one tough lady. Sounds that, like it. That's what I got from his comment. There would have been challenges and she must have had enough gumption to stick it out. For sure. Right. Her final duty of assignment was with the West Virginia National Guard's 115th Engineer Company in Clarksburg, where she attended unit functions with her family. She was discharged from the Guard in 2006 under good terms. Okay. So she was honorably discharged. Great. During her later sentencing hearing, Retta would claim that she suffered PTSD and military sexual trauma that she had experienced while serving. After her military career, Retta worked as a correctional officer at the North Central Regional Jail. This just, again, shows you that she is one tough lady. Oh, sounds like she can hold her own. Yeah. It was during this employment term that Retta was accused of restraining an inmate while another correctional officer kicked the inmate's head until he lost consciousness. Oh my goodness. The inmate claimed that when he regained consciousness, that Retta was standing over him. She spit in his face (gasps) and said, you ain't that tough now, are (gasps) you? Oh my gosh. The lawsuit was dismissed when both corrections officers denied all allegations made against them. And a judge determined that there was not enough evidence to support the case. So the case was just kind of thrown out. There was no ruling whether she actually had done it, whether she was guilty or innocent. It was just thrown out because there wasn't enough evidence. Wow. So it actually went to court. Absolutely. Whoa. I assume that would have just been handled, you know, in the jail. Internally. No, the guy actually took it as far to actually charge them with assault. In 2007, the Mays family suffered two house fires within a few days of each other. The first was deemed by the insurance company to have been an electrical fire on the porch. The second was deemed arson. What? Yeah, so she just kind of had this sketchy life going on. Yeah. The insurance company was dragging their feet on paying them out because they deemed the one fire arson. Right. But Retta sued the insurance company (laughs) and the insurance adjuster for refusing to pay in a timely manner for their home that had been destroyed by fire. So did they start the electrical fire somehow for that to be deemed that way and it didn't burn enough of it so then they just started on fire or maybe the electrical fire was like a total accident and then they're like oh crap how are we going to pay for this this isn't going to be enough a big enough insurance claim so they started in another fire so that it would actually do the whole house. Oh, like, oh, this is not a bad idea. We can yeah. get money for this. So why don't we just burn the whole sucker down to the ground? Yeah. <laughs> well, no one knows what actually happened because the lawsuit was settled out of court under a confidentiality agreement. So the outcome is totally unknown. But when that happens, usually it means that she got a payout. She got a payout. Interesting. In 2012, Retta's family took another hit. On March 15th, her husband was convicted for accessing both male and female female child pornography and (gasps) sent to jail. Ooh, dirtbag husband. So awful. Uh So she has a lot of things going on in her life. But honestly, if you found out your husband was viewing child porn. Oh, that's so disgusting. Yeah, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. He served approximately five years, eight months in a correctional facility and then was given supervised probation for life. And I wonder how embarrassed she would have been because she's a correctional officer, right? Mm -hmm. And then her husband goes to jail for child porn. Yeah. That wouldn't have boded well. No, but she stays with him. Really? Mm -hmm. Gordon was ordered to pay one of the victims whose pictures he accessed $1,925. Really? Isn't that weird? That is weird. So one of the victims later sued him for damages done because he had accessed pictures of her as a child. Okay. And so she said because of that, she had suffered. So he was ordered to pay this one victim $1,925. This debt fell on Retta to pay because he was in jail. So she was having to work to pay off his debts. Oh, I'm sure she loved that. Mm -hmm. Her husband was in prison for a second time in 2020 when she was going through all of her trials because he failed to update his sex offenders database. (laughs) 
So they're a bit of a hot mess. Did they, they have any children? They did have two boys and I believe there was a stepson as well. I couldn't find really good records to say that for sure these children were there. So I didn't want to mention their names. Okay. But there were reports that their oldest son, if he was actually their son, uh, went to jail as well on drug charges. Yikes. So yeah. this family's struggling. Yeah. There's a lot of issues in this family. And I found it interesting that the same judge that was over her husband's case and potentially her son's case was the judge that was on her case as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> Small town. <laughs> That's true. Then would he have a preconceived notion about her? I don't know. Interesting. Which is an interesting fact, yeah. right? Her next employment would be at the Res Care, a group home for adults with disabilities in Clarksburg. Within three years, she rose through the ranks to a residential care manager, supervising 15 other employees. No complaints are ever recorded during this period of employment, and a spokesperson for the company states that she had left in good standing. This is quite a diverse career path that she has. Totally. And I wonder why she left the correctional place. Well, she left after the inmate made the allegations that she had taken part in assaulting him. Okay. It sounds like, though, she's good at what she does. Like, when she has a job, she's able to do it well. Yeah. Up until the end, it sounds like. <laughs> she commits. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's why she has so many victims, because <laughs> she commits to what she's doing. She just follows through. So this description of how she was at the res care is actually quite a different description of how other people would describe her when she takes on her role at the VA hospital, mm. which I thought was so interesting. So in the res care, in the correctional job, in her service in the military, she seems like a very confident enforcement kind of personality, take charge. And the reports about her personality at the VA hospital are very different. Hmm. That's so interesting. Retta had multiple jobs before applying to the Louis A. Johnson and Veterans Affair Medical Center. So Retta changed jobs a lot. And I think the confidence that she built over those jobs led into her overconfidence when she applied for her nursing position. Oh, I could see that. Because she had dropped out of accounting school. She joined the military after 9-11. But then there's no record of her having any other schooling after that. How do you get hired as a correctional officer? Okay, I can see that. That you, that military background military. makes sense. Yeah. How do you get hired as a resident care manager at a facility for adult with disabilities. Where's the connection there? Yeah, I'm not sure. And then take it one step further. Where's the connection to being a nursing assistant? Especially with no credentials. Like, do they not check when they're hiring these people? No, they don't. Oh, no. Here's my disclaimer. She actually isn't a nurse. <gasps> She's not even a nurse. No. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Oh. So someone dropped the ball there. They should be checking. Absolutely. But you said she had a lot of friends in the community, knew a lot of people. I wonder if some strings were pulled together these jobs. Maybe. And maybe people felt sorry for her, right? Because her husband's first arrest was well publicized. True. And she had to pay. So victim. she needed the job and yeah. she had had these two house fires. and Yeah. And looking at her, you're like, oh, she's our military. You know, she was a correctional she... officer. Like she's doing good things for our community. So maybe that did play into it and in getting her this job. I don't know. Or she totally just lied on her resume. She totally did. It's probably what she did. Yeah. <laughs> but the personality switch between her other jobs and this job is quite drastic. And so then it makes me wonder, is this where her mental health issues started? Because she'll later claim that she was suffering from the PTSD and the, the sexual abuse that she received while she served. And mm -hmm. is this kind of the switch for her? Yeah, it could have been a breaking point for sure. Either way, Retta was hired by the Louis A. Johnson Veterans Affairs Medical Center in June 2015 for a night shift rotation. This facility is one of the largest employers in Clarksburg, West Virginia. VA medical centers are those medical centers that are run by the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is responsible for 9 million military veterans in the United States. 9 million? Yeah. Whoa. So the whole like Department of Veterans Affairs is responsible yeah. for 9 million. It's a lot of people. That's a lot. And then that's a lot of people that serve. That's true. So good on them. I'm, thinking, I'm barely responsible for my three children. How can I be responsible for 9 million vets? <laughs> True. It was considered an honor for a veteran to get hired there. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Retta was hired as a nursing assistant. At the time, the VA Medical Center in Clarksburg did not require a nursing assistant to have a certification or a licensure for initial appointment or as a condition of continuing employment. So when I was in nursing school, I did work as a nursing assistant in one of the local nursing homes 
homes where I was doing my schooling and I didn't have a nursing assistant certificate I was going through for my RN. So they let me work there on the condition that I was going through my schooling and that I later had to show proof of my RN license. Okay. So it's not an uncommon thing, but at this time, this hospital didn't have a policy put in place that you actually had to then follow up or show that you were in school or show that you had some continuing education going on. It probably wasn't an unusual practice at the time for her to get hired without having a certification, but there should have been some ongoing like checkup to see, okay, you are working on a certification or you have some experience or or something else. Some type of credential. Yeah. I bet they do now. (laughs) They do now. Retta ruined it for the rest of you. (laughs) So Retta would work the night shifts wearing a blue and gold vest and fulfill her duties of taking vitals, taking glucose levels and other caregiving tasks for patients at the hospital. Staff were given mixed impressions of Retta's personality. Some thought that Retta was a go-getter and that she was helpful and eager to please. Others described her as unsophisticated, almost childlike, speaking with a high-pitched voice and often seemed naive. Hmm. That reminds me of your last case when you talked about the profilers of like a poisoner, how they're childlike and immature that way. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Sounds like she has the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. Oh, absolutely. But she was anything but naive. Retta had found a crucial technology blip in the hospital's software system. So remember, she's this chemical equipment engineer. Oh, right. right? So she has some background knowledge and she had found this blip in the hospital's software system. The charting system was erratic in downloading the patient's glucose readings into their charts. So when the physicians come in in the morning and they review all the lab results and the glucose monitoring that they had done overnight those readings weren't being downloaded into their reports that they were getting. Oh, so she found her opportunity. That's right. She found a blip in the system and she took advantage of it. Retta worked the night shift from 7.30 p.m. to 8 a.m. at the hospital from 2015 to 2018 on the medical surgical floor, Ward 3A, and was often unsupervised during her employment there. Okay, well, she worked there three years. They would think she knew what she was doing. Some people would say that she went in knowing what she was doing. They just assumed that she had her career credentials right. Wow. The patients on this unit required some care, not ready to be discharged, but were not in life-threatening situations. A number of patients on this unit suffered from diabetes, a disease characterized by elevated blood glucose. I just need to give you a little bit of background on diabetes and how insulin works because that's her method. Why do they always use insulin? They're not very original. (laughs) It's true. A lot of the cases when you find nurses that kill, they're using insulin. Well, and up until this case, it was actually really hard to track. I think that why it was so readily used was because it was hard to prove after the fact why these people have these hypoglycemic episodes and then they cascade and other things actually lead to their death. And you can inject insulin and it doesn't act right away. And so you have time to get away if you choose to. And if their software system is not recording things properly, she can go undetected. And that's probably why she gets away with it for so long. Yeah, it is. So I'm going to give you some background on insulin and hypoglycemia and what happens with that, just so you understand what her patients were going through. And it'll be interesting in how the forensic pathologists that do the autopsies later on actually prove that it was insulin that killed these patients. Awesome. A regulated blood sugar is important because it helps your body function in a proper way. Sometimes diabetes type 2 is treated with diet and exercise or oral medications, and sometimes it has to be treated with an injectable hormone, insulin. Type 1 diabetes always requires insulin. Insulin is a hormone produced by the pancreas to keep blood glucose normal after food digestion. Most importantly, it's administered by ejection into the fatty tissue underneath the skin. Hypoglycemia is a condition characterized by lower than normal blood sugar. The normal range of blood sugar is four to seven millimoles per liter. And that's for us Canadians because down in the States, they use a different system and a normal blood sugar level would be 72 to 126 milligrams per deciliter. The range gets a little bigger after meals or different stressors, but generally those are the levels that you're looking at. So I need you to remember the numbers 72 to 126. Okay. Hypoglycemia is treated by ingesting carbohydrates or eating food or an IV administration of a sugar water solution. Hypoglycemia is a known effect of administering insulin to a non-diabetic patient or administering more than the prescribed dosage of insulin to a diabetic. The risks of severe hypoglycemia include seizure, coma, and death. And it's with this knowledge of insulin and hypoglycemia that Retta uses to kill her patients. 
oh no. These patients relied on her to take care of them when they were vulnerable, and she administers insulin, knowing how it will affect their body. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. What a dirtbag. Diabetes is hard enough for people to have to live with day to day, and then have someone take advantage of you that way. So yeah. terrible. During her night shifts, usually while assigned to sit with a patient one-on-one, Retta would inject a patient with insulin, usually in the abdomen, even though nursing assistants at the Clarksburg Hospital were not qualified or authorized to administer medication, including insulin. (gasps) She would then sit with them while their blood sugar plummeted. In the following hours, these patients would experience erratic heart rates, headaches and confusion, convulsions, and would finally spiral into a coma. And she probably acted like she was trying to take care of them and, oh, here, let me do this for you. Yeah. Well, apparently while they were falling into a coma, she would sit quietly with them and wait just long enough before she called for help. Till she knew it was irreversible, probably. Mm -hmm. Witness accounts during the police investigation would reveal that Retta would often remain in the patient's room while other healthcare professionals worked to correct the blood sugar levels and deal with the cascading health emergency. Retta would watch families' reactions, and during one resuscitation attempt, she provided the CPR and later complained to her husband during a telephone call that her arms were like rubber from doing the compressions. <gasps> yeah, we feel so sorry for you, Retta. Yeah. It just shows how callous she was. That is all kinds of messed up. Mm-hmm. And like from reports, she was frequently in the rooms. She was presenting herself as this caring nursing assistant who didn't want to leave her patient's side. She needed to find out what had happened. Oh. But really, she was just wanting to see the results of her own handiwork. Oh, it was a perfect ruse for her. She probably got off on the distress and the commotion and the chaos that she had caused. And no one would suspect or think she was weird for still being in the room. She was so awful. And again, I just find it that much more difficult to take from somebody that you trust. Yeah. She was in this position of taking care of people and she did these things to them. It's just so awful. She should be held like double responsible. When she wasn't assigned to a patient during her night shift, she would use her work computer to search the internet for female chronic executioners. And she would also watch the Netflix show, Nurses Who Kill. Oh, I've watched that one. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's always all in insulin, but it though. Is. Yeah, I didn't make yeah. it through the whole series because every case just seemed to be the same one over and over. So unoriginal. Yep. Her Facebook account just prior to the start of the investigation showed several nursing memes that were pretty questionable and probably not the most professional. So oh my gosh. These memes were like of when you've had a bad night at work or when your patient is awful or like <sighs> just all of these things that just wouldn't be professional. Right. And she was like, I'm thinking about it. She was likely watching that Netflix show to get pointers. Yes. To learn how to do it. Probably. Oh no. At work. Not even watching it at home, but watching <laughs> it at work. Way to be discreet, Retta. <laughs> She's a piece of work. In May 2018, so this was just before somebody raised awareness or started thinking like, okay, this is too many coincidences. On her Facebook, she posted about how much helping wounded veterans meant to her and solicited people's donations for a nonprofit group that supported veterans. Oh my goodness. How about we don't kill them, Retta? That's a good way to support our veterans. Let's not murder them. It's that so is, messed up. It is. It wasn't until June 18th, 2018, that several doctors Doctors employed by the hospital reported their concerns to their quality management team, who then forwarded on to Dr. Glenn Snyder on June 26, 2018. So it took them well over a year to kind of put all of these gut reactions and these feelings that people were having. And they weren't just like fleeting feelings. She had actually gotten a reputation for, oh, there's a lot of patients that die on her shift. And At so, least they were keeping track of that. But they weren't really keeping track of it. They oh. were just kind of noticing it in passing. But it takes them over a year to finally put all those pieces together and come forward. That's crazy. Well, I could see that at the beginning, you wouldn't even think there's a pattern yet. It would take a while till you would start to even see a pattern and think that maybe this isn't a coincidence. Well, and how often do we have those like little gut instincts of like, oh, this person isn't very nice or there's something not quite right about this person or this situation and you just brush it aside right. and you think, oh, that's just me overreacting. There was one time when I was a resident manager and an applicant came to the door to apply for an apartment and the moment I saw him, this is the only time this ever happened to me, literally the hair on the back of my neck raised. I got goosebumps and chills and I just knew this was not a good dude. And I denied his application and the city actually made me approve him. And he ended up terrible. And when he finally got evicted, he had left pipe bombs in his apartment for us. (gasps) 
Mm-hmm. Oh. My radar was right. It was the wildest thing. Instant gut reaction to seeing this man. And your gut reaction was right. And it was right. Wow. Yeah. Just goes to show you, we should be following those gut reactions, even if they seem a little bit crazy. Right. Trust your instincts, people. But it took them over a week. So from June 18th to June 26th for them to actually pass it on up high enough that something could be done about it. Oh. The concern that they raised was that there were an unusually high number of hypoglycemic events occurring on Ward 3A. In the spring of 2018, there were three deaths in three days. <gasps> so one every shift. There is two in one shift. <gasps> Oh my gosh, she is ruthless. Ruthless Retta. Ruthless Retta. There were so many deaths in that time period that the ward had even run out of glucose as nurses repeatedly tried to raise the blood sugar levels of the various patients. Oh my goodness. Yet no one raised the alarm at this time. That is crazy. No reports were filed and no one batted an eye. And was the insulin not locked up? Like, doesn't that have to be usually regulated and signed out? And Well, it does on our medication carts. It does have to be signed out it's because it's such a dangerous drug. Yeah. But unfortunately, in this hospital, it didn't. It was often oh. just left out on top of the medication carts. And that's how she had such ready access to it. Oh, my goodness. Families were told that their loved ones had died from natural causes or underlying health conditions. Or sometimes they were even told, yeah, we just don't even know why they died right. so for unknown reasons. And I guess if your family member has diabetes and they're in the hospital, to find out that they died from a complication of their diabetes wouldn't be that far of a stretch to believe. At the time, people knew that they were dying from hypoglycemia, but they didn't dig any deeper to find out why are these hypoglycemic events happening. Right, because they should be monitoring or they were monitoring like their glucose levels, like Mm -hmm. you said at the beginning. After each death, the hospital failed to follow up on the unusual circumstances of each of the deaths even though each of these deaths should have triggered what we would call a sentinel event. So it was such an unusual event that it should have triggered an investigation right away. Oh, for sure. But it didn't. So this is where you're talking about how someone else can be, a third party can be responsible Responsible. as well. Mm -hmm. These unexplained events happened over and over again on Ward 3A and had resulted in deaths of several patients. And most curiously, these deaths were occurring in some people that didn't even have diabetes. (gasps) So you said like if you were a family member and your loved one had diabetes, then it wouldn't be a shocker if they experienced hypoglycemia. But there were several of these patients that didn't have diabetes to begin (gasps) with. Retta, she's ballsy. Oh, ballsy. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. An official internal investigation began on June 27th, 2018. So just one day after it actually got to the right person, they were looking into it right away. And that internal investigation quickly led to a criminal one. During the internal investigation, it was identified that Retta was the only person to have contact with all the victims because there were relatively few staff that worked the night shift. They narrowed it down really quickly. Once they, once they were actually looking, it was pretty easy to find. Good. Well, I thought if it was that easy to narrow it down to one person, how easy would it have been preventing so many deaths? Oh, for sure. The patients that Retta was tasked to sit one-on-one with often experienced an unexpected severe decline in their respective health conditions between the hours of 1 a.m. and 7 a.m. on the nights that Retta was with them. Probably the quiet times when she could do it. Yeah. Retta was fired from her job at the VA hospital in July 2018 after spending some initial time only on suspension. So while they were doing the investigation, 
They removed her from patient care, but they didn't officially fire her. What? Yeah. I guess it's the whole innocent until proven guilty thing. Yeah. The hospital's official line when she was fired was that it was because she had lied or misled them about her qualifications. At the time that she was hired, there was no background check done. They just took Retta's word that she was a nursing assistant. Wow. And once again, bogus headline, she's actually not a nurse. Right. <laughs> Us nurses don't kill. Although some of them well, do. Well, some of them do. <laughs> The good ones don't. (laughs) And the majority of them don't. That's right. And you work really hard for your credentials. Yeah. And then for someone to come like that and just say, oh, yeah, this is what I am. And yeah. Dirtbag. Does that make you angry? Because you had to work so stinking hard to get Well, and not just once. It's a yearly thing. You have to provide so much proof that you've done this amount of education, these amount of working hours. You've been supervised for this and that to prove that you are still competent to practice as a nurse. And so for someone to just go in and just lie and say, yeah, I have these credentials. And then for the hospital not to check, that just seems surreal to me. Yeah, totally. But that's what happened. And unfortunately, it led to the death of so many people. Oh. Out of the numerous suspicious deaths that were reported by the criminal investigation, investigators found that there were 100 people that died during Retta's night shifts, 66 of them from hypoglycemic events. 66 died? Yeah. Well, 100 people died while she was like, so they oh, okay. they do that chart analysis and they right. say, okay, how many people died on these days from these hours when Retta was actually on the ward? And for that amount, they found 100 people had died. From those 100, 66 of them had died from hypoglycemic events. So she has 66 potential victims out of that 100. Well, you don't know. These deaths were further narrowed down to as many as 20 deaths that were considered to be potential homicides. So the real number of her victims actually isn't confirmed. Oh, I bet it's way more than the 20-some. And that 20-some is actually further reduced to 10 when they dig into it and they can actually draw some conclusions. They're probably the ones that didn't need the insulin to begin with. There are at least 21 families that claim that their loved ones were murdered. U.S. Attorney Bill Powell said that there were about 20 suspicious deaths at the medical center during the time that Retta worked there. However, charges were only brought forward in cases that the government believed that there was sufficient evidence in. So from even that 10, there were only eight cases (gasps) that had sufficient evidence against Retta. That's terrible. So from 66 potential ones to eight that she actually gets charged (gasps) with. Oh, so she literally gets away with murder. Mm -hmm. Retta's confirmed killing spree started on the night of July 19th to 20th. So remember, she works the night shift. So she starts one day and ends the next day. Right. So sometime between July 19th and 20th, 2017, while sitting one-on-one with Robert Edge, an 82-year-old Navy veteran, she administered insulin. He was a type 2 diabetic, but was not prescribed insulin during his hospital stay. Oh. Following this, Robert suffered a severe hypoglycemic event marked by a blood glucose level Remember those numbers I told you? His blood glucose level was 17. (gasps) And it's not supposed to go below, what was it, 126? 70. So 70. Oh. Yeah, 70 to 120 is like the rough range. Oh my goodness. A normal should be above 70 and his was 17. That's crazy. It is crazy. Hospital staff used several ampules of dextrose 50. So this is how you treat hypoglycemia is with something that's pretty much equivalent to sugar water in an attempt to raise his blood sugar, but he never recovered and died on the afternoon of july 20th an insulin overdose was listed as his cause of death and he wasn't even prescribed it yeah he was never prescribed it so they knew what his cause of death was but they didn't dig into it further and that should have been red flags right away Mm -hmm. like who gave him the insulin that's right why were these questions not asked on january 28th to 29th in 2018 so she gave it some time then she had one kill and then she waited a little bit longer Retta sat with Robert Cazal, an 89-year-old World War II Navy vet, and gave him an injection of insulin. He was not a diabetic. He suffered severe hypoglycemic event marked by a blood glucose level of 27. He, too, did not respond to treatment and died on January 30th, 2018 at 1 a.m. Just three months later, so she's picking up speed, on March 23rd to 24th, Retta sat with 84-year-old Archie Edgel. He was a type 2 diabetic but did not require insulin during his hospitalization. Archie was an Army veteran that had served during the Korean War and had been admitted less than two days before for an assessment of just dementia. (gasps) 
after Retta injected him with insulin, he suffered a severe hypoglycemic shock and for the next 24 hours was treated for his low blood sugar. He was barely hanging on to life on the evening of March 24th when it was Retta's turn again to care for him. Oh no. While sitting with him for a second time, she administered another injection of insulin, dropping his blood glucose level to 23. <gasps> he died the next morning on March 26th. After his death, Retta continued her friendly relationship with his granddaughter, who was her neighbor. <gasps> oh my gosh, that is a whole level of evil, honestly. Goes back to that Jekyll and Hyde. She had yeah. two totally different personalities going on. How terrible. While Archie struggled for his life, Retta was also caring for George Shaw on March 25th, 26th. George had spent 28 years as a communication specialist in the Air Force before retiring, and had even worked in the mailroom at the hospital. <gasps> so he's actually a co-worker even. Mm -hmm. He had been admitted to the hospital with swelling in his legs, and his condition was improving. On March 24th, during a discharge planning meeting, his wife had identified that George liked to wander, and because of this propensity to wander, he was assigned a one-on-one -on -one sitter for the evening shift. Retta Mays oh, no. would sit with him. Oh, no. While sitting with the 81-year-old one-on-one, Retta administered insulin to him as well. He wasn't a diabetic, and his blood glucose reached 17. So these are why these patients... Are the only ones that they can charge her because they weren't prescribed insulin. That's their right. Stay. So there was a clear link of like this absolutely shouldn't have happened. And I was just thinking too, while you were talking, her employer would have had a sense of trust with her because they all served in the military together. She was a veteran as well, right? And so mm -hmm. why wouldn't they believe her? You wouldn't be expecting one of your own? Right. Because I'm assuming there's a sense of community and family amongst veterans. Well, and definitely a sense of honor, right? Yeah. You wouldn't be expecting somebody to be dishonorable and to lie. Right. Mm -hmm. Makes her so dangerous. So George would never recover from his hypoglycemia and died on April 10th. The family had requested an autopsy after he died, but that autopsy concluded that he had died from heart failure. These findings would be later overturned by a forensic autopsy. Oh. So he's actually one of the few that had an autopsy done at the time of his death. Hmm. As I go through these, listen to why they're in the hospital. So her main claim is that she was this angel of mercy, that she was putting these old veterans out of their misery. But none of these patients were anticipated to die. They weren't in the ICU. They weren't on life support. They weren't in severe um, pain in severe pain or anything like that. Several of them were in the stages of being discharged. Wow. And the one was there just for an assessment. Yeah. To see if he needed to be placed in a nursing home. Wow. Retta was back to work April 3rd to 4th. She spent her night sitting one-on-one -on -one with William Holloway, a 96-year-old who served in the Army during World War II. He was a type 2 diabetic, prescribed a certain type and dosage of insulin, and she gave him a higher-than-ordered dose, causing his blood glucose to reach a level of 30. He, too, was treated with D50, and it was, again, unsuccessful. He died on April 8th, and prior to Rita's one-on-one -on -one care with him, he had been recovering well, and his diabetes was well-controlled. So they actually had reports of his sugar levels before, and they were all well in the hundreds. Oh, right where they should be. Right where they should be. He was perfectly controlled. It's funny that she didn't pick victims that were on deathbed. You know, she probably wouldn't have got caught. That's right. But that's why her whole excuse of, oh, I'm this angel of mercy is bogus. Totally bogus. Because she wasn't picking people that were going to die. She was totally just high on her own power of being able to choose life or death for people. For sure. On April 8th to 9th, Retta struck again, this time injecting Felix McDermott, an 82-year-old with insulin on the left side of his abdomen. He wasn't a diabetic. He had been admitted to hospital on the 6th, so just a couple of days before, for aspiration pneumonia. And prior to being injected, the Army veteran who had served in Vietnam hadn't had any problems with his blood glucose levels. While he was diagnosed with clinical dementia and some other health conditions, he was not in an imminent risk of dying, like at the time of this hospitalization. Felix's hypoglycemic event saw lows of 12. <gasps> so in Canada, our normal levels are 4 to 7. That's 0 0.62. <gasps> Oh my gosh. So low. He didn't have a fighting chance. No, he died April 8th at 9 a.m. Oh, so terrible. Mm -hmm. 89 year old Raymond Golden was Retta's next victim on June 3rd to 4th night shift. He was a type 2 diabetic requiring insulin, but Retta administered more than ordered. His blood glucose level reached 7. 7? Yeah. The Air Force veteran that had served in Vietnam passed away on June 8th. We actually held on for quite a bit. And I just think those poor, sorry, poor victims, obviously, those poor families, but all of her co-workers would have been scrambling to try and keep these patients alive. That's true. I never even thought about the other workers there. Yeah. 
They're doing all of their best to help these patients and do whatever they need. And meanwhile, she's administering insulin behind their backs. And especially the one that she had to inject twice. Twice, yeah. Yeah. And when the autopsy reports come out, nobody ever says it fully, but some of them were injected up to four times. (gasps) And so she probably didn't do that all at once. It was while they were trying to raise their blood sugar levels again and giving them glucose and doing all those things that they were to treat them. She was totally counteracting it (gasps) by administering even more insulin. And then the other workers would be so confused as to why this isn't helping him. He should be getting better. We're administering these things to help him. Yeah. Just wondering why their treatment wasn't working. Like this is a known treatment. This is how you treat it. And it wasn't working. And thinking that your coworker was going against you. No, the, not even cross your mind. The whole time she's sitting in the corner acting like this caring person that just wants to see the outcome of her patient. She wants to be there for the family. She wants to hold their hand. Oh, please let me sit with him one-on-one tonight. I don't want him to be alone. Oh, that's like scum. Yeah. She's scummy. Retta's last confirmed victim was 92-year-old Russell R. Posey. He was not a diabetic, but Retta administered insulin, causing his blood glucose to drop to 14. Hospital staff responded quickly and treated with D50 and by June 19th, his blood sugars had stabilized. He was transferred to a nursing home and he died a short time later on July 3rd. The medical examiner could not conclusively say that the hypoglycemic event had caused the patient's death, but Retta later admitted that she was connected <gasps> with him. Wow. And I wonder why she didn't admit to all the others. They had really good evidence to say that she had administered it to him. And so she did oh. say that, yeah, I administered it to him. Okay. Like, um, oh, well, what's one more? That's right. But because the medical examiner couldn't say conclusively that it was because of that administration that he had died because he had lived on for so long after and he'd actually been transferred to a nursing home that they couldn't say that she had caused his death. So she actually, for this one, gets charged with attempted murder. Oh, okay. There were other deaths too that were connected with Retta, but they couldn't be proven conclusively. And one of them is John Hallman. And I'm going to go through what happened to him, but it's like, uh, no, she totally did it. Okay. But they just couldn't find enough evidence. He was a Navy veteran who had served during the Korean War and he was admitted to the VA Medical Center with liver problems and signs of pneumonia. His condition wasn't serious and he was expected to be discharged. He died the morning after being admitted. (gasps) Blood work done just prior to his death showed spikes in his insulin levels. So up until now, we've been talking about their glucose levels and glucose levels. If you have insulin, they go down. Right. But his insulin levels had gone way up. He was a patient of Retta's the night his insulin levels spiked. No autopsy was conducted and no further evidence could be collected because he had been cremated. Oh, no. Yeah. So they just, they physically couldn't collect any evidence to link her to it. But just by the scenario of everybody else's deaths, they knew that she was responsible for many more deaths than the ones that she was actually charged for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I believe that 100%. Yeah. So it was cases like those where they just couldn't find the evidence, but looking through the medical charts, it totally looked like she had committed more murders. Mm -hmm. And for it to be so drastic, like the morning after he was admitted, all of a sudden. Yeah. And they had documented blood work showing that his insulin levels have gone through the roof for no apparent reason. Right. Well, we know the reason. Yeah. Most of Retta's patients never had an autopsy performed following their death even though their sudden death should have warranted one. Of the autopsies that had been performed, none were considered suspicious, and so no investigative autopsy was ever performed. So remember the Harrison family murders where yeah. if it wasn't right. triggered as suspicious, then they only got a normal medical autopsy. Right. And an investigative autopsy just goes so much further into detail. Right. And so that's what happened with these ones is that there was no investigative autopsy done. Okay. When the criminal investigation was open, several of the families were asked by the FBI to allow their family members' bodies to be exhumed. Remember that other night when I sent you that screen capture of that one autopsy report I was reading? Oh, yeah. Super disturbing. Oh, that's in here? Yeah, that's from this case. Oh, no. Yeah. I didn't go into the details, but it was one of the most disturbing autopsy reports I've ever read. That was terrible. I thought it was for your upcoming case, your one after this. No, it was, it was one of these exhumed bodies. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was gross, people. Really gross. So gross. But that would be expected if the bodies are being exhumed, right? Oh, yeah. That that explains it because I didn't get any context with that text. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just living my life. And I get this text from Melissa. Oh, what does she want? And it's this gruesome description. <laughs> Some friends send each other some inspirational quotes throughout the day. <laughs> Melissa sends me pictures of gruesome autopsy reports. <laughs> That's just where we're at right now. Oh, man. And it didn't even phase me. No, That's the funny we were like, part. I was oh, like, that is oh, gross. wow. <laughs> 
So it was from these autopsies that they were able to discover that all these patients had been injected with insulin. And what I found was really cool. It was new scientific technology that was used by pathologists to discover insulin injection sites during the five autopsies of bodies that had been buried for months. Wow. It marked the first time that this kind of testing had been done anywhere successfully beyond just a few days postmortem. Yeah, because like months later... Mm -hmm. And an injection site is so small and you would think that that skin would be decaying. Decaying, yeah. But they used microscopic trace evidence collected from the adipose tissue or the fat tissue of the victims to collaborate insulin administration as the cause of the hypoglycemia. So what they did oh. is they did these slide smears of the adipose tissue underneath where they found bruising on the abdomens. Oh, yeah, because you said it was injected into the fatty tissue. So that makes sense. So it wasn't just the injection site. It was the tissue. No. And so they found ah. crystallized insulin, like actually the medication in the adipose tissue. <gasps> that is so cool. It is so fascinating. Science is awesome. Yeah. And they were also able to provide an estimate of the window of time between the time of death and the time that the insulin had been injected because of how much was absorbed. And so how many crystals were left over in the adipose tissue versus how much wasn't there anymore. Wow. Trace evidence is so fascinating to me. Me too. I love it. This is why we get along so well. <laughs> Who else can you talk to about decaying adipose tissue with? Right? Everyone needs a morbid friend. <laughs> and that's why we're here. We're here for you. We can be your morbid friends if you don't have one already. If you like those details, you're in the right place. With all this evidence against her, Retta confessed on July 14th, 2020, to murdering seven patients and intending to murder an eighth. She wow. admitted to injecting them all with insulin with the intent to cause a severe hypoglycemic events that would cause their death. And this is so recent. This mm -hmm. is just last year. She was actually sentenced this year on May 11th. Whoa. A lot of her cases are from the past a little bit. You know, there's usually like some we do more recent, but this is super recent. It's sometimes hard because there's a, usually a, a time period of where they haven't released any of the court documents and things like that. So mm -hmm. sometimes the investigation into more recent cases is more difficult. It's easier to look up those older cases. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Unless they're really old. Yeah. And then you have the opposite <laughs> problem. <laughs> During the sentencing hearing, families were able to express their feelings towards her. And Retta made a short, tearful statement saying that she wouldn't ask for forgiveness because, quote, I don't think I could forgive anyone who'd do what I did. There are no words that I can say. I can only say that I'm sorry for the pain I've caused the families and my family. So she was like, yeah, I don't know why I did it. I'm not going to apologize because I won't get forgiven is basically what she was saying. Well, she wasn't going to ask forgiveness. Yeah, she did say I'm sorry, though. Okay. Well, yeah, big whoop. Yeah. <laughs> Apology doesn't go very far sometimes. No. Actions speak louder than words, honey. Yeah. And I don't know if it would have been worse to have to sit, because in those sentencing hearings, they are awful to have to sit through. Oh, they would be. Yeah. And I don't know if it would be worse to have the killer of my family member not be remorseful or to hear their cries about how sorry they were. Like, what do you think? Oh, would it tick you off more or disrupt your grieving more or your processing of it if they weren't remorseful? They were just like, yeah, whatever. Or if you had to sit there and listen to them be like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I, I know that's a really good question. Huh? I don't know. What would you, what do you find? I think I would be pretty upset because here she is saying she's sorry, but she still doesn't give them the satisfaction of giving them a clear answer about why she did it. Right. And I think that would upset me more. Yeah. Like, okay, if you're going to be all callous and not be remorseful and then not tell me why you did it, that kind of makes more sense. But here she is sitting there crying and saying, you know, I don't expect you to forgive me. I, you know, I'm so sorry for what I've done, but yet she won't give them because most of the families, their main thing was, why did you do this? Right. And that's and, what you're looking for. Yeah. And she huh. didn't give them that. So how sorry can she be? But then I think maybe she actually didn't know the reason herself. She might not have. But even if she didn't know the reason herself, You'd think after the first couple of victims, she would have figured out her motive. Oh, absolutely. I think she did have motive. Well, it's probably a power motivation, yeah. right? And so then her saying she's sorry and that she's sorry for all the pain she caused and that she wouldn't even bother to ask for forgiveness because she knows it's unforgivable. Was right. that all an act? I don't know. Sam, I, I'm torn on this. Which would be worse? To have them all gushy and, oh, I'm so sorry. Or to have them show no remorse. And it just reminded me, I had just watched a video about Ariel Castro. If any of you know him, he's terrible. He kidnapped all these girls, held them in yes. his basement for like 10 years. Awful, awful things. Yeah. And in his sentencing, he talks about how he even like blamed the police.
police. If the police were doing their job, I wouldn't have gotten away with this and showed no accountability. And I would have wanted to like strangle him with my own little hands. Wait for the next case that I'm doing because his testimony on the stand is beyond anything I have ever heard. And the way that he treats the victim's families during his sentencing hearing is so atrocious. Oh, no. Yeah. Because this type of thing, like listening to that Ariel Castro talking about that, that made me more mad. You know, I would rather have seen him apologizing or showing Mm. some kind of remorse or no remorse at all, but trying to pass the buck and make excuses. Yeah. Like, oh, I held and tortured and raped these women for a decade because the police weren't doing their jobs. Like, screw you, buddy. It just seems so wrong. Yeah. So speaking of her motives, both Retta and her attorney alluded to a history of mental illness and PTSD and sexual trauma from the time that she had served in the military, but none of them ever specified how or why that would have made her commit these crimes against these elderly men. In a few of her statements, Retta does say that she believed that she was being merciful towards the patients and the families of their victims, but the prosecution and the judge were quick to point out that none of these victims were suffering at the time of their death, that they weren't in a palliative condition, and in fact, most were recovering and and planning to be discharged from the hospital. Maybe it had to do with their ages. Maybe she just thought if they're at that certain age, I'm just going to stop them from having to go through anything like that. Because they were all pretty old. They were, but that doesn't mean that just because you're old doesn't mean you don't have anything to offer life. Oh, I 100% agree. I'm just trying to think what was she yeah. thinking? What was her motive? You know, oh, I'm doing this to help them. Or was she just having like this severe break? Because her personality changed between the job right. at the hospital and the job at the adult care center. Right. And so was it that she just had a complete break? There was a lot going on in her life at this time that that she was working at the hospital. She was dealing with her husband being incarcerated. It sounds like one of her sons was having a difficult time with the law. She had her own lawsuit with the insurance company. Well, with the insurance company and then again for the assault charge. Right. So she she was dealing with all of these different things. And so did she have just this complete break, mental breakdown? I don't know. But because it went over for such a long time and even as they're resuscitating and trying to help these victims and she's giving two, three, four doses to make sure that they're dead or that they die. No, I don't feel sorry for her that way. You know, like, I I feel like, I mean, it could give us some understanding as to why she did this. Well, and that's why I always bring up like, okay, could it be because of this? And it's not because I think that there's some justification or that. No, not at all. Not at all. But I do think that if she was having this break, maybe this is how she got the control back in her life. Because so many things in her life were happening that were out of her control. Right. That maybe it was just, this was the only thing that she could control over other people, which was horrific, but. Totally. But think of the sense of power it would give Mm -hmm. her. She would feel all powerful. And to do this for over a year and get away with it. Yeah. You would think that you were so smart and to watch all of your other coworkers and people that had like higher designations in their job than you fight to undo something that you did all the while knowing like, ha ha ha, I did that and now you can't fix it. Right. And you would feel this superiority over them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think that, yeah, no way was it because she was this angel of mercy or no, I don't, I don't buy that either. No, no. Return to sender. Retta was sentenced with seven consecutive life sentences and an additional 20 years for the attempted murder charge. Good. She was also ordered to pay a total of $172,000 to the victim's families, the hospital, and the insurance companies. (laughs) That little thousand dollars doesn't seem so bad now, does it? (laughs) No, not at all. So So I'm assuming like they would have to sell her house and that kind of stuff. It's really not that much money. Like they should have made her pay more, but good. Well, the judge made a statement about, yeah, it should be a lot more money. But she was already in such financial dire straits that he limited it to this amount. This was like the bare minimum that he could charge her with. Oh. And I thought this was so funny because I don't think I've ever realized that when people get jail time or sentencing, that they can also be monetarily penalized, which is so Not often in a murder case. You're right. You don't often see that in a murder case where there's this fine that goes along with their sentencing. Yeah. It's often like a fraud case or something like that, right? Yeah. Because usually there's some sort of restitution factor, right? Right. That's why you're having to pay the money back. And honestly, how do you put a price on somebody's life? Yeah, you can't. Yeah. But maybe he felt like if he gave her that amount, she could pay it. Or maybe because we're going back to that same judge that had been on her husband's case and possibly her son's case. Um, Maybe he just wanted to make sure all the funds were drained so that nobody else yeah. could do anything else. Right? Yeah. Good for the 
judge. Yeah. I'm not saying that's his motivation, but I had that thought. Yeah, that's kind of funny. And since you come from a family of dirtbags, not only am I going to give you all these life sentences, I'm going to make you give the victims all the rest of your money that you have. Yeah. Yeah, good. Retta is currently being held at the Federal Correctional Institute in Aliceville, Alabama. Wow. And that's where she is today. Every time we say like, and they are currently, it makes me think of Patricia Roar. Like, are they going to be listening to us? Talk about them. How many times did I call her a dirtbag? I wonder if she'll comment like Patty. Interestingly, the judge actually recommended that she go to a mental health facility, oh. like, but she hasn't made it there yet. So I'm anticipating that she'll actually be moved. And in all honesty, she probably needs some mental health care. Oh, absolutely. Most people and the victim's families felt that Retta was not the only responsible party. Most were upset because the hospital had not performed a proper background check on Retta prior to her employment and that the hospital failed to ensure a functioning chart system and they failed to put in place fail-safe procedures and policies that would have limited the access to medication or that they should have been following up on these unexpected deaths. In May 2018, just prior to the investigation being started and during the time period that Retta was actively killing patients, that hospital had submitted an audit report that stated that in the previous 20 months, there had been no major incidences of patient (gasps) harm or danger. No. Yeah. So they were completing all these audits and making sure that the hospital was safe while she was killing people and they never caught it. So they didn't catch it or they didn't want to deal with it. Well, hopefully it's that they didn't catch it. And it's just so sad because you had said a lot of the employees had this gut feeling and it took so long for someone to finally speak up. Mm -hmm. Oh, So it wasn't like she was totally under the radar. People knew what was going on. Yeah. And so that's why I asked, can somebody else be responsible for a serial killer's actions? Yeah. I feel like they have some responsibility. When you're running a hospital, there needs to be those kinds of checks. Well, there's a higher duty of care, Mm -hmm. right? Since the crimes were committed, the hospital has changed its policy and put safeguards in place. Auditing medical charts fixing the glitch in the charting system, and enhancing medication handling. So now the insulin is locked up. Still, families remain very upset because Retta was able to continue killing for so long. Numerous wrongful death lawsuits claim that the hospital staff that were suspicious of Retta's actions failed to come forward and that the hospital itself was negligent. So they're actually going after some of the hospital staff saying, you had this feeling and you didn't act on it. Oh no. How do you feel about that? No, that's awful. Yeah. They're just, they're trying to do their jobs. But they are being awarded settlements. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was found that the nurses in the emergency room would openly comment about patients being admitted to Ward 3A, that they were likely to die because of the rash of deaths occurring. Other staff members were reported to have sent text messages to one another about the eerie coincidences about Rita always being involved with clients that were dying unexpectedly. But all would say that they never actually connected her to killing patients. They didn't actually think she did it, but they were making connections. And so in these lawsuits, people are trying to hold them accountable for these gut feelings that they had. Oh, But like we talked about, even in the Paul marriage case, when you're hurting and you're upset, you just want to lash out. You want someone to pay. You want some retribution, even though it's not going to help. Yeah. But you just feel like you have to do something. All these um, wrongful death lawsuits are being awarded, but it's more because the hospital didn't fulfill its duty. Yeah, None of them I have say- actually worked on a personal level, but right. those claims have been made that those people that had those gut feelings were responsible as well. I would say leave the other staff. They've already been traumatized <laughs> enough. Leave them alone. The hospital was negligent in a lot of ways. Yeah. They should have checked backgrounds. They yeah. should have known that their charting system was, you know, not working properly. Yeah. And definitely the medication should have been locked up. It shouldn't have been easily accessible for anybody. And when they were doing their audits, they should have done them better. Right. And it seems that Rita wasn't the only problem that the Clarksville VA hospital had because on October 14th, less than a month ago, the medical surgical unit of 3AM was shut down following a review of patient records that revealed concerning patient safety issues. And those have to be some very big safety issues to shut down a whole unit. In the press release that same day at 1036, it stated that the care that was being provided by staff was being investigated by an external administrative board. So this hospital is having some issues. Oh my goodness. So the same hospital. Same hospital. Same floor, but just a different unit. They had to shut down the whole unit and ship the patients elsewhere. (gasps) My mind is blown. I want to know what it is. We got to find out. (laughs) Well, it's just, that was just October 14th. Yeah. So hopefully we'll have some new information coming soon. That's wild. Maybe we'll 
Maybe we'll keep our listeners up on that. Yeah. This might be one that we need to do a recap episode on because interestingly too, that same day, there was a medical legal symposium on this serial murder case and why Retta had been allowed to operate and subsequently how she was caught by the hospital and all the new scientific techniques that they're using. There's a whole symposium that was just done by the WVU College of Law. Yeah, you'll have to update us a little yeah. bit by bit. So with that, that is the sad and dishonorable case of Retta Mays, a supposed nursing assistant who killed veterans for no apparent reason at all, except to exert her power over sick elderly men. Shame on you, Retta. Yeah, and what an awful way to treat those men that so willingly served and sacrificed for their country. Yeah. Our veterans and those serving in the military, they deserve so much more. Yeah, they should be held at the highest regard. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We are so happy that you joined us today. Happy Remembrance Day, everyone. We hope you find a small way to honor a veteran today. And next week, I'll be taking you on another international case. And that one is also going to be a bumpy ride. So we hope you tune in. Have a great week, everyone. See ya. Bye. It gets my knickers in a bunch every time. <laughs> put that in the bloopers. I am. <laughs> Dang it. Blooper reel. Check. You were right. Yeah, they're beautiful, but I could do without. <laughs> How unoriginal. Right? Get creative, right? Yeah. The whole heckle and jive thing going on. Just, no. <laughs> I'll get it. Hold on. She wasn't <laughs> Do I even say this? Yes, you do, because I'm going to put in the bloopers. No, this is just for you and me. <laughs> Let me say that again. Dunk, 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 dunk. Marked by a bug who, a bug go, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was just going to keep talking. So with all this evidence against her, against her, I get her. I get her. I'll edit something. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.